<laughs> you could all hear that, questions about eating. Some magic trick other than paying attention and noting what happens. <laughs> Would that there was. But uh, you're right, eating is um, an extremely, uh, sometimes very intense uh, activity during the day for many people. It often comes up in interviews. Um, a whole range of stuff can go on, so as I'm sure you all know. Um, there really isn't a magic trick, but part of it is, uh, I find, to go into the, to the cafeteria, first with a sort of, I set my intention, okay, let me really explore what goes on. Not an intention to somehow change. Like I know often some of the difficulty that comes around eating is people either think they're eating too much or too little or uh, wanting to have less greed or judgment or whatever, so sort of a setup before going in. I want to have less of this or more of that. And the eating experience becomes a struggle before it even begins. So it's kind of a combination of going in with the intention to be mindful, but also that means acceptance, just the clear being with what is without necessarily trying to change a real acceptance. And then I find in eating, uh, as in all activities, all large activities through the day, that the precise mindfulness, for example, standing in line, really feeling your body, use the body sensations to come back to. So standing in line, really feeling the body, really uh, grounding in your, the reaching in the arm, and you can note these, reaching, reaching as you reach for the plate, you know, touching as you touch the coldness of the plate and move it back. That helps to stay grounded in the present moment. And in that, if I'm touching the plate, or I'm standing, and a lot of thinking starts, I see myself leaning forward, wishing the people ahead would hurry up. You notice that more. If you're grounded in just the sensations of standing, you notice when you start to lean forward, when annoyance starts to arise. And rather than, oh, I'm bad, I should be a good yogi, and be calm, oh, annoyance, annoyance. Come back and feel the sensations of annoyance in your body. Notice the thoughts. Notice the seeing contact that gives rise. Seeing, it's unpleasant, they're going too slow, annoyance. So you can get closer and closer to the sense door contact. That's the kind of precision aspect of mindfulness. But in a situation like the dining room, we also need to bring in clear comprehension, the, uh, the other aspect that goes with mindfulness of being aware of the totality of the situation. So sometimes you'll see someone going through the line looking so perfectly mindful, but so slow, and there's 40 people behind them. It's not really a balanced mindfulness. Mindfulness needs to include clear comprehension of the whole situation. So it's like knowing when it's appropriate to go slow, knowing there's a whole situation. Then when you get to your place, if you want to take two hours to eat and feel every mouthful, that's fine. So it's kind of both of those. And you're right, when you're eating, lifting, you might feel lifting, and then 45 thoughts 
you know, between lifting and swallowing, and we didn't notice chewing. Okay, when did you wake up? Swallowing, right there, <laughs> note swallowing. Never mind the thoughts you missed. And if you somehow in the swallowing you're feeling really tense, somehow those thoughts you missed brought up attention, then you notice tension, right? Then you don't have to retrace it all, but start where you are and you notice tension, tension, tension. You know, and just like that. It takes an infinite patience and not any expectations. A little louder, please. Questions about rebirth and the kind of, he gets obsessed, would like to believe it, doesn't really. Why is it mentioned so much if it's not relevant? Um, you probably should ask Joseph, because you might not have noticed, but I've actually never mentioned it. Um, <laughs> I'm... I don't mean to imply that I don't believe it's true or that it's not relevant. From my own experience, I can't remember my previous rebirth and I don't know the next. So for me, it's on the level of a belief. Deeper than a belief, I have a faith because it makes total sense, but I have no proof. And I can't offer you anything stronger than that. You're right, in some ways, if I, well, I do know, in some way I have a faith that we just keep going, that rebirth happens because um, it doesn't make sense otherwise. If I didn't believe that, it would be sort of completely nihilistic, you know, just do whatever you want and this is it, you know, you've got to get out in this lifetime. Doesn't, doesn't look good <laughs> sometimes. For me, I'm only talking for me. <laughs> And um, I can experience karma within this lifetime, and it makes sense to me that it would continue. But I don't have proof for that. And as far as a belief goes, it's, Joseph says you don't have to believe it because believing anything is only a view. Views and opinions are helpful at times, if we are attached to them, they're hindrances. They can block our freedom, our understanding. And if you're trying to you know, create a view that you want to believe, you know, because maybe it would make you feel better, that kind of wanting it is what's going to lead to the obsession of mind. You know, I don't think something as subtle as rebirth, we can just decide to believe it or not. You know, it doesn't work that way somehow the belief has to come out of a faith that is there, that arises from your own experience. And the experience could be many different things. Um, so 
personally, I think if with rebirth or anything else you hear any of us say, if it engenders a lot of confusion in your mind, it doesn't mean it's right or wrong, but to try and think through it and can engender doubt and a lot of, as you say, obsessive thinking, and that experience is not helpful. You know, doubt is a hindrance. And at that time, whatever it is, rebirth, karma, no self, whatever it is, when the mind is caught in that obsessive thinking or wanting to believe it or it, hearing it's making us upset, at that time of obsession, it's not helpful to keep trying to figure it out. It's just turned into the hindrance of doubt. And so at that time, to really note it as doubt, wanting, obsession, whatever it is, put it on the side. And many things, many doctrines, I use that word, of Buddhism, that 20 years ago I couldn't relate to, made no sense. It was true, you don't need it to practice. You absolutely do not need any of these doctrines to practice. We only need to pay attention to what's happening right now. And out of that, understanding will come. You don't have to direct, try to direct your experience to meet some doctrine you've heard us say. Forget the doctrines. Just bring all your attention to being with present moment experience and understanding and freedom will come out of that. Whether or not that ever results in that you can take the view of rebirth and say, yes, this is true. Like if you can leave that aside and just really be with your experience I think the faith and understanding will come that will take the pressure off of, oh my God, you know, only this lifetime I'm going to make it or bust. You know, a kind of deeper faith will come where you see that is actually an irrelevant thought in some way. Um, And that needs to come from, it will come from your own experience if you just keep looking. So, So noticing doubt, doubt, doubt for any kind of analytical thought can turn into doubt. Just notice that, okay, now's not the time, and come back to this moment. Oh, okay, it's time to, for me to go talk and for you to go walk. Do you have any questions about your practice this morning? Yeah, Les. Mind is really triggered. You mean like a lot of different things that happen trigger the aversion? Is that what you mean? Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> get it. <laughs> it's painful. Yeah. Uh, if you couldn't hear the, could you hear the question? How to work with a version uh, that seems to be quite strong, strong identification, a, a particular thing keeps triggering the aversion, uh, but there's a strong identification with it. Seeing it, seeing thoughts of being the victim, but still feeling really caught in it, uh, and it could last all day easily. Um, and it's really suffering. Um, I kind of, when that's going on with me, or any particular thing that triggers us, and it seems to go a long time, it could be aversion, it could be sorrow, it could be greed, you know. Um, and we know we're seeing it on some level. There's some mindfulness, definitely. But the, it keeps getting triggered. I assume the trigger keeps happening over and over. Is that accurate? It's not like it happened once three weeks ago. At least the trigger might be a memory of what happened again or something like that. That Can you notice points where it keeps getting re-triggered? Yeah, but it's uh, sometimes it'll just keep Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, like it starts and you get in the aversion and then the trigger happens again and it just keeps going. Yeah, yeah, spinning out of control. Um, so I, I try and come in on whatever level I can at a particular moment. It takes, I feel, a great deal of patience, uh, acceptance that this is happening, seeing if there's judging of oneself that this ought to stop, right? I'm seeing it, it ought to stop, which I find is one of the biggest kind of hooks that keeps it going for me, that on some level I think I'm seeing it, it ought to stop. By this time in the retreat, enough already, you know. There's no excuse for this to be happening. <laughs> that, yeah, something like that. Really notice that kind of adds on top of it. It's like aversion to the aversion in, you know, multiple regression. Um, and it's actually not the original trigger sometimes anymore, but these subtle, this shouldn't be going on, that's actually the, the, the aversion of the moment if you know what I mean. So I try to come in with attention wherever I can. If it's only at massive aversion, then I do stomping aversion meditation, you know? Aversion, aversion, hating, hating. I hate everybody and everything. And just feeling that in my body. Very important to keep coming back to feeling the experience physically, if you can, in this moment. A hundred million times pull out of the train of thought, whatever it is, whether it's about the trigger, whether it's this subtle, why is this still happening, whether it's trying to analyze, all of which takes you out of it, and just come back and feel the aversion for the hundred millionth time. You know, I know this already, I don't need to feel it. No, feel it. That's what's happening. Land in the middle of it over and over with a real as much as you can acceptance, this is just what's happening. Because what I find is the, the more I can do that, the more I can accept the whole sordid train of events, the more I land in the middle of it over and over, I start to see what is actually the hook of identification. 
It might be that it seems the identifications to the whole story, but there might actually be one little piece of the experience that the sense of identification is really gripping around. It might be the unpleasantness of the trigger. The identification might be with a subtle thought, this shouldn't be happening. It might be with a view, my practice should be better than this by now. Um, It might be that the trigger elicits an unpleasant physical sensation that we don't quite notice, and the aversion is actually being triggered over and over from the unpleasant physical sensation, and we don't quite notice that. Did you see what I mean? There's lots of different little pieces, but we have to start by accepting the whole thing is happening, or you can't get to the more subtle levels of seeing the different component parts and where the identification comes. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, what I mean to hear with that mindfulness, because of mindfulness, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to go away. No. Yeah, we get caught in that view. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, I try to know to identify. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That something still right now. Although in some ways I would I wouldn't say identification runs deep. I would just say it arises frequently, moment to moment. It's not some deep thing down there. It's just arising in a moment around a momentary experience. So it's not that that's necessarily so hard to see. So for me, I'll just be, I'll see the thing that's really hooking me. I can see the different pieces, and some piece comes up, and it's like, oh, I'm really angry now. I go, oh, uh-huh, that's where it's kind of poking at me. Just on that level, you know, it's nothing more subtle than that. Yeah. But you make a good point. We think mindfulness often means it should go away, and that's not the case at all. Yeah, thanks, Liz. about aversion to physical pain and seems like there's fear around it at times and as she goes into the pain sometimes it gets worse and she could stay with it stay with it but it just seems unbearable um, <clears throat> and, I mean there's a lot of different ways in working with physical pain um, and it's very important as you said to be not only aware of the physical sensation, but also of the mind's relationship to it. So it's true, sometimes when we move attention into an unpleasant sensation, it gets more intense. That's absolutely true, sometimes that happens. 
And the point isn't to bring our attention to it to make it go away. So we see immediately if that was our point, because as soon as it gets more intense, it's like, oh, pull back, this isn't working. Um, so it's really important in working with pain to find a balance of being able to move into it very gently with calm attention, simply because that's what's happening, explore the sensations with a balanced, equanimous mind, but to notice when the mind is not balanced and equanimous, when there's fear, when there is aversion, when there's this kind of contraction, to be able to note and notice that. In fact, in the moment of the fear, that's the strongest experience, perhaps, not the pain. And they're two different experiences, although they go together. So really noticing the quality of mind that's with the unpleasant, difficult sensation. And I don't... It's not necessarily the most skillful thing to just stay with it, stay with it, stay with it. If we're staying with unpleasant sensation and the experience is, this is unbearable, this is unbearable, I can't handle this, that's not mindfulness. There's a quality of real aversion, of contraction, of fear in that, which it's very important to notice and feel. And in fact, it might be helpful to move away from the pain to reconnect with either your primary focus or hearing or something else that's happening to re-establish a more balanced quality of awareness and then move back to the difficult sensation with a more calm mind and you'll notice then, oh yeah, this is more equanimous and you'll notice when the aversion starts to come in. Notice that, soften again. And I've had sittings where I could sit a long time with strong pain because the mind could go into it in a very calm way and not get really tight. The next sitting, the mind was tired. As soon as I touched the pain, it was like gritting the teeth time. And you could sit like that, gritting your teeth and hating it for an hour, but look at what's being cultivated in the mind. Is that mindfulness? Is it equanimity? Or is it a subtle aversion and willpower, you know, and that's not the point. Then it's either to keep playing, because you can often go into it, notice the aversion, you can back out and give it a bigger focus. You don't have to be precise when it gets tight. Really be within the field of the whole room, not even just your body, but the whole room. The pain is there, but there's this much more spacious quality of awareness that can help to ease it some. Back and forth with that, noticing the mind states. And of course, sometimes if it's at such a point that you just feel overwhelmed and moving would help, that could be an appropriate time to shift if that's done with awareness of the intention and quite mindfully. So it's a a process of balance. And for all of us, there's times where moving doesn't help, the mind is tight and constricted, trying to open up doesn't help, and we're, you know, we're in aversion. And that's our practice. At that moment, there's no, you know, it's, it's going back and forth between it all. Okay, um, time to walk. Thank you. Any questions this morning about practice? Baba? I'd just like you to comment about stopping. Um, on the Wednesday you mentioned it. Also at the beginning of 
About stomping? stomping. She wants me to comment about stomping. Did I? No, I don't think so. Uh, she said, I mentioned early in the retreat, this is really bad stuff we mentioned early in the retreat, is remembered and commented on. <laughs> I mentioned stomping up and down in the woods when you're angry, and she says, I said it was unskillful, which I, I don't think I would have meant. I certainly wouldn't have meant it was unskillful. Um, is that the question? Yeah. Yeah, um, she sees moving physical expression can be helpful. I certainly never meant to say, I don't think I would have said, that stomping in the woods when you're angry is unskillful. When I've mentioned stomping meditation, so to speak, it's really, I mean it when there's a feeling of anger, for example, is so strong that trying to sit or walk very slowly downstairs just feels like the energy is so strong, it feels as if you're going to explode or scream or do something unskillful around a lot of people, you know. So, I mean, I've practiced it myself where I go off where no one's around and I really am stomping up and down and I am aware of anger. You know, there is a modicum of mindfulness there, you know, in a broad sense. You know, not like notice the, you know, perception that gives rise to unpleasantness, that gives rise to anger. We're not on that level. <laughs> but there's a feeling in the body that's unmistakable, and I feel my foot hitting the ground. You know, you're present, and it's anger, anger. And I just might be stomping, screaming inside, anger, anger, anger. And, you know, it uh, calms down a little bit. So that's what I mean by stomping, and I don't think it's unskillful. It's much better than just imploding and trying to pretend you're sending loving kindness, you know, to all beings. It's like, just acknowledge what's happening. And uh, Sometimes I do find it useful to move the energy. It's so big, there's no choice, you know, so we walk more briskly, go where there's no one around. Yeah. Trish. Mm-hmm. So, and I have actually seen people too, where it has gone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Trisha's question that follows on this, talking about how uh, Thich Nhat Hanh will say that um, by expressing, this is her interpretation of Thich Nhat Hanh, eh? by, expressing, by expressing anger, a sort of watering the seeds, and it gets stronger and stronger, um, which... I would say is true, and I would make a distinction between the two things we're talking about here. When I talk about stomping, as I said, it's still with some mindfulness. I'm not stomping saying, right, that person who made me angry is wrong, I'm right, let's get it going, let's do something. 
That is nurturing the seeds of anger. That's caught in the story, identification with wrong or right, or I should be angry, or hating yourself for being angry. And it's expressing it physically, but not with mindfulness, with feeding it. And I would call that watering the seeds of anger, and I've seen that in myself. Or one time, I remember on a retreat, I was very angry at someone, something that happened. Um, and I just, you know, feeling the anger, it feels mindful, but there's real identification. I just kept going over the story, and yeah, I should be angry, and that was wrong of him to do. And, and at one point, I noticed the anger was just getting stronger and stronger each time that I, you know, recommitted to the fact that, yeah, I was right to be angry. You know, I deserve to be angry. This was really a rotten thing to happen. That's definitely watering the seeds of anger. I could feel it sprout. Stomping is like it's bringing mindfulness in on whatever level we can, but to the experience of anger itself. Yes, anger is present. Don't pretend it's not present. That's not mindfulness. Thich Nhat Hanh also says you have to treat your anger with gentleness, with kindness, like a younger brother or sister. You can't treat your anger with violence. You know, there's always there's something for both sides. But it's to find the balance in mindfulness of truly acknowledging what's happening with total acceptance and nonviolence. If anger is happening, we need to truly acknowledge it. We can't pretend it's not there. But with mindfulness, simply acknowledging anger itself, its presence, its physical expression in the body, the pain, the images in the mind, that's happening in this moment. But feeding it, watering it in the way Thich Nhat Hanh spoke of it, is getting really identified with feeding the story, keeping it going, acting it out, and then actually doing something out of the space of, yes, this is justified. You know, or it's not, I hate myself, and so you know, we beat ourselves for anger. But do you see the difference? One is bringing in mindfulness in whatever way we can, precise or huge, doesn't matter. The other is just diving into it and saying, yeah, let's really get going on this anger. And it's our, it's our delicate balance in practice not to suppress and pretend it's something unpleasant isn't there, and not to really fan the bonfire, you know, and let it really take over. And it's a, a balancing act that we all are dancing all the time. It's tricky. Hmm. Lorna. <laughs> now, um, I want to know, uh, is awakening a state? Or is it a state that you constantly maintain? And is awakening a state that, that we all are experiencing moment by moment? When one is awakening, does it one still have? It's possible, Lorna, yeah. <laughs> is it something, is it or something one goes 
the question about awakening and is it a state, is it propped up, do we go in and out of it, are we awakened and we don't know it. Um, there's lots of different ways it could be answered, so I'm not, please don't think I'm giving a definitive answer to this. But there's a Tibetan saying I like that it's easy to become awakened, but it's hard to stay awakened. <laughs> Sometimes I think it could be said like, first of all, not a state, not something to be maintained. That would imply a conditioned state that if you set up the conditions, you can hold those conditions and that state will stay. Forget it. There isn't any such of a state. Um, there's nothing in a way the whole talk about becoming enlightened can imply we're going somewhere and when we get there, plop, here we are, all the work is done. And, and when you read the suttas, the arhats seem to be in that state. Perhaps so, none of us here are there and it's uh, not a sense of anyone I have met that they feel that their work is finished, there's no more need to practice, I've got it, you know. Um, my experience is much more on a much more different level from arhats, we won't even talk about it in the same breath, but a sense not of some state to get to, but of a recognition of something, it's not even a thing, that is always true, always uh, what we truly are, only we don't recognize it. The potential of recognition is here now always. It's not somewhere else, it's never somewhere else. The whole problem with craving is that it takes us away from right here, which is the only place in time to, to recognize our potential of awakening. And I personally feel that that is possible in many moments, and we forget, we lose it, we can't remember. The times when there's an insight of anything, oh, that's so obvious, that's so true, we've all had that, I'll, I'll live like this now, forever, you know, it's so clear. And how long, you know, before the next comes along, and even though it was so clear, we can't by will make it happen again. You know, so that's the dance. I think it's the dance. The whole practice is one of constant re-recognition and letting go. But there's no state to maintain. Oh, there's a couple of uh, things we need to announce. I know it's difficult, a hundred people living together in conditions that you do not personally control this morning. Questions about thought and um, when you have one thought that leads to a whole series, as they do, and you wake up and find yourself at the end of the series, how useful is it to trace the thoughts all the way back to the first thought that triggered it? She finds it interesting. Uh, it can be interesting. 
if it's overall, I don't know how useful it is. Um, I, I have found it at times interesting just to see how far we can get and how how really disconnected we are in our thoughts from uh, present moment experience. So, for instance, you know, finding yourself on the coast of Mexico and wondering how you got there, and tracing it back to the fact that you know my little finger is cold can be interesting, you know, once or twice just to see the way uh, things work in this world. Uh, or if um, I'm waking up in the middle of something very emotional or difficult, sometimes to trace it back and see, oh, there's something difficult happening here and now, and I've projected it into this thing that happened 10 years ago. That sometimes I find useful or interesting. Sometimes I really want to qualify it because it turns into a real... How can I amuse myself? It's sort of a mind game. Let's trace back all the thoughts. And it is, it is ultimately just more thinking. So I, I would say with great caution, occasionally it can be useful and instructive. If you're doing it more than really occasionally, look at the motivation. You know, it's just another way to pass the time, sort of, and not feel the pain in the knee. Um, you know, so I would just check that out. And I don't think that's just earlier in the retreat. That's still happening, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Mark? Um, you gave your talk about, uh, I don't know what you gave your talk about, but you talked about. Uh, <laughs> I remember the example. Uh, you spoke that when, much of the time when you have discomfort, Mm. Yeah, I wasn't exactly saying that. Well, yeah. we, we, we project or we portray an image of something mm-hmm. rather than just the sensations. Mm-hmm. And, um, Can I clarify? <laughs> something I said in an earlier talk uh, where I was speaking about there's sensation, like sensation in the knee, but then also we might have an image of that. What I was saying, I, I didn't mean to imply that only because of the image of knee is there discomfort or aversion or reaction. What I was trying to say is that, um, yeah, there's sensation, unpleasant. Uh, we might be identified or the grasping of self might be around that sensation. What I've found for myself is quite often there is an image as well as the sensation that's fleeting or often not noticed and that the real, for me, the real identification that I might be calling identification with the body or that sensation is actually in that moment the, the uh, contraction of sense of self is around the image. And I often don't notice the image. Um, <clears throat> I don't mean to imply that if you notice the image that necessarily means there's no identification or reaction to the sensation either. Both could be, but that's... Morning, there was a lot of me 
Again, a question about uh, hearing and uh, the difference between just the sensation of hearing and then knowing it's wind and images of trees and snow. And knowing the image, coming back to hearing, is that basic going back and forth? Is that a problem? No, it's just what's happening. I think the only reason it would so-called take us away to be in the image is if we don't realize it's seeing. And we're sitting here really thinking. We're in the trees and the snow. You know, but when you know, you know this is hearing, you know this is seeing or imaging, it's like that's just what's happening. There's hearing arising, there's seeing arising. There's no problem. You know, no, one isn't better just as long as we know what's what. You know, it's not a problem. Yeah. yeah. I thought that sounded pretty good. <laughs> he doesn't like the discrepancy between precision and being more general. You notice you don't like it, right? You can notice you're not. <laughs> There's a lot of ways I could go with this. Um, I have to, the first thing that comes from, out of me is, uh, there isn't any perfect way, and it's all going to be precise, and it's all going to match up perfectly, and uh, if we could not really let go of thinking, it's all going to be perfectly matched, always precise, or always general, or whatever, to try and, sometimes I think, this is my opinion, only my opinion, 
we can get a little sidetracked into trying to make the reports so precise and perfect that more emphasis can get put on trying to describe it accurately to the teacher. And it can, yes, it needs to be somewhat clear, but too much emphasis and energy and concern and desire can go into trying to make the report accurate. And I don't think personally that that's as useful as being precisely with your experience. That's where the understanding is going to come. And I found for myself there are times when you can, your first part of the question, you can be with a sensation and you just know it's burning. You know, and you can tell it changes to tingling and you're not thinking about that so much. But there are times, as Steve said, where you might almost be in a pre-verbal state where that part of the mind that's very verbal, very rational, you know, very adult, isn't working so well. And uh, maybe somebody noticed that during this retreat. And <laughs> when it's not, don't worry about you. To be really with the sensation, there's times I'll just note sensing, you know, because I, it's not worth moving away from the experience to try and find the perfect word. Mm. So if I'm in a state like that, first of all, none of us is upandita. We're not going to like cream you for coming in and not describing whether you felt the sensation in the left nostril or the right nostril. You know, you could say, right? <laughs> and you can say, I felt I was with it, but somehow today the words were not clear. And that's actually a clear perception. When you can say that, it's different from you come and say, well, I don't know, it was some kind of sensation. I don't know, I wasn't really there with it. Those are two different experiences, and you can describe that differently. It's not always going to be so precise. Um, And you don't have to then later make up some precise words in order to tell us about it if that isn't really accurate from your experience most important is to just try and convey your experience as close as you can to how it was at the time. Words will not always really be so accurate, you know, because we're really trying to convey something that's beyond words. Um, And in the same vein about the smelling and the hearing, you're right, smelling and hearing is not that precise, but I think it's helpful because it is bringing our attention to the process, which is the point. So if I'm just noticing smelling, it's not as precise as acrid, bitter odor, you know, that reminded me of a chemical uh, explosion in the fourth grade. But it is more important to be with the smelling aspect, with the process, actually a little less involved in the content is fine. Just all that's really happening is the sixth sense experiences. So, so just resting a little more generally is really okay. It's really okay. And don't worry so much about we have to get it precise to describe it, either to the teacher or to ourself. Um, sometimes the words aren't there. You know, and it's really okay. Okay, it's time to walk.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.